Thanks for checking out this episode of the Screen Facts with Jason Davis podcast. Every Wednesday we talk about a movie that we've enjoyed and we throw in some fun trivia during the conversation. You can join the conversation at facebook.com slash screenfacts. You can also tweet me at Jason Davis Voice or email screenfacts at yahoo.com. Well, joining me back on the podcast, long overdue, it's been about three months, I think, the blazer, Brian Berkowitz, is back. Hey, that's me. That's you, man. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. <laughs> hey, it's always a pleasure. Any time that stops me from being on the podcast is time not well spent. So I'm glad to be back. Glad to be talking about a great movie today. Most importantly, glad to see you. Did you have a good summer? Absolutely. I think with our vacations, we just couldn't get the schedule to work out. So. That's all right. Well, whatever those powers that stopped us from being here, here <laughs> I am today. I'm back and I'm ready to talk movies. Last week on the podcast, uh, Eric and I discussed Heathers, which is a classic from the 80s with Christian Slater. Right. You and I are going to discuss a movie today that is, well, I guess sort of a classic from the 90s. August 22nd, 1990, to be precise. Nice. Pump up the volume. And that would be a screen fact, actually, wouldn't it? Yes. August 22nd, 1990. Yeah. And that's uh, just a few days after he turned 21, too, by the way, Christian Slater. You know, it's funny. When I looked at that this was from 1990, I really thought this was a film from the 80s. I thought mm-hmm. it would have been 86, 88. You know, it's a big difference, but I think there was a, a good line between the 80s and the 90s. It just almost seems like the 90s began my descent into adulthood a little bit. I think that the late 80s and early 90s sort of blended nicely into each other. There wasn't a real abrupt... Think about even the music that we were into back then. Right. It was still, well, 80s, late 80s to 90s, we were still okay a little bit, weren't we? Yeah. It... Trickster, Firehouse. Yep. Slaughter. Warrant. So yeah, there was a lot of stuff that sounds very 80s, but it was actually early 90s. This is what I like about this movie. Maybe we should come up with a term for this kind of movie. The mm-hmm. kind when you're in bed and you're ready to go to sleep... And you turn it on real quick, and all of a sudden you're saying to yourself, oh, I'm just going to watch five minutes of this movie. Next thing you know, you're going to bed at 3 o'clock, and uh, you're, you're a zombie the next day. This is such a movie to me. This is the kind of thing where if I see it, I can't shut it off, and I always end up staying up too late and watching it. Yeah, and you know, this is a perfect movie for late night, too, because it is sort of a kind of a cult movie and sort of an independent movie, too. It wasn't a big box office success. And it's funny to talk about the night. It's a little dark, the whole movie. They talk about secret identities. We'll mm-hmm. get into the movies. It seems like when he's Mark, mm-hmm. most of those scenes are the day, and when he's, uh, you know, Harry, it's most of the scenes are at night. I mean, obviously- That's a good hit, point, actually. And, you know, it was pretty cool, but it's an interesting movie, and uh, it's something that I always think about, always leaves me thinking when I watch it. Watching it again yesterday to prepare for the podcast, I forgot how good Christian Slater was in this movie. You go, well, he's a good actor, but you know, you forget he's essentially playing two roles in this movie. Right. Mark Hunter, his body language... Everything about him is so different from the Happy Harry Hardon character. It's a Clark Kent Superman. It really is. It really is. It's amazing. Down to the glasses and everything. That's true, actually. You know, I am a big Christian Slater fan. When he first came out, to me, he always seemed like a young Jack Nicholson. He sounded like him. He played a uh, senator in a movie called The Contender, which is a movie that I like very much. The movie is basically trying to confirm the first female vice president. Jeff Bridges plays the president in it. And Christian Slater played a very mature role in it. He's a young senator in it, but he was fantastic in it. And every time I think about it, he's in some great roles. Yeah, I mean, last week when we were talking about Heathers, how great he was in that, even though they're both sort of similar in their darkness, this is a very different role than that. 
in that, you know, that movie was more of a dark comedy. This is more dramatic with funny moments. This movie is so well written, too. Like, yeah, it, it, his it, monologues in this movie are phenomenal. I, you know, I noticed last night, I hate to say this, but it's almost a bit Sorkin-esque. Yes. It's, I was thinking that, too, when it, I was watching it. Really, it. And, you know, you wonder if we, if we, how deep we look under the hood, if you see if there's any connections to it or whatsoever. And, you know, you think about it. I said he was like a young Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. and uh, Jack Nicholson and a few good men. Didn't we talk about that? Yes, yes we, we did. did. We did. And also there's another Sorkin connection in this movie. Samantha Mathis, who plays Nora in this movie, was in The American President. Yes, she was. I have a lot of thoughts on this. I don't want to jump in. Let's go through the housekeeping first. The housekeeping first. It. Very good. So uh, this movie is the first of three films that Samantha Mathis and Christian Slater did together. Uh, they also worked together in 1992's Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. That's an animated film and Broken Arrow in 1996. And although Samantha Mathis had done some TV work before, this was her first major movie role. She had one other movie on her credits that I saw, but this was the first big one. In fact, in the credits to this movie, introducing Samantha Mathis. That's a big deal, getting an introducing role, right? Absolutely. She, um, interesting enough in this movie, every time I watch this, I'm surprised she's not a bigger star. Now, I looked, I checked her out, and she's done plenty of stuff. She's done, you know, Grey's Anatomy. She's mm-hmm. done... Um, she was on House once, right, I remember. She's, she did, uh, of course, you know, everyone's been on Law & Order. Even you and I have had small roles on <laughs> That's Law <right>. & Order. <laughs> but a couple of things about her. I think that she had a wonderfully unique look. She's very mm-hmm. pretty. Very. And she basically, she almost played the two roles, too, if you think about it. True. She was... Eat Me, Beat Me Lady? Yes, yeah. exactly. But she was very much... Kind of outgoing at school, but mm-hmm. she was also poetic and prolific. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that she was very good. And then again, um, very cute. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm surprised that she wasn't a bigger star. I don't, I don't think she's done nothing. She has a lot of work on it. But I think that she was undervalued maybe in the, after this role. Absolutely. Yeah, she's she's worked steadily since this. I mean, if you look on her IMDb page, she's still working You know, today. Again, she does a lot of TV stuff. Right. I don't know what the powers in Hollywood that be how they decide who gets the movie roles. and But I agree. Very good actress. Not sure why she didn't get the breaks. I also read somewhere, I looked at a picture of her, and I was like, that looked weird. She dyed her hair black for this movie. Yes. And I think she was blonde or mm-hmm. much lighter hair. And the black hair suited her well and really, yeah. I think, was an important portion of that role that it fit in right. I don't think she would have pulled it off as well. And I think that the black hair was a little contrast to a Paige Woodard, the character, yeah. who was... Mm-hmm. She, it, it the, the, like, the really popular yes. rich girl. Right. It almost seemed like dark and light. And I think yeah. that... I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but it really looked that way also. I'm sure that they had her dye her hair purposely, so she would kind of fit in more with the darkness of Happy Harry Hard on. <laughs> so, what, what, so what do we know about this movie again as we're going through the housekeeping? So written and directed by Alan Moyle, domestic gross of just $11.5 million. Again... This is a movie that really didn't get a big shot at the theaters. It had more of a a wider release than Heather's did. But I guess this is just one of those movies that is really, really good that slips under the radar. That happens every once in a while. Can I digress for a second? Of course. So, you know, somebody's name is Smith, right? Mm Mm-hmm. If you trace that back, that's to their earliest professions, right? Blacksmiths, (laughs) cobblers, you have these names on it. (laughs) Is the director's last name Moyle? Alan Moyle. Now, isn't that spelled different, though, than a, than a Moyle that uh, works for tips? You know, <laughs> I don't know, but and I'm embarrassed to have to bring it up, but I think that if we're going to be real here, think about this. We're talking about a movie where a guy's sitting, not unlike we're sitting here right now, speaking into a microphone, mm-hmm. saying what's on his mind, and that was on my mind. You know what? If I'm going to stay hard, <laughs> like Harry, 
I think I have to say what comes to my mind. So that's fine. Alan Moyle. Alan Moyle. I, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you and I are sitting here talking into microphones. And that's really kind of the thing about this movie that's so amazing and how far ahead of its time that it was. Last year was the 25th anniversary of this movie, which is amazing when you think about it. A lot of people pointed out, wow, this thing really was ahead of its time because you got to remember back when this movie came out, there was no internet. There was no YouTube, no blogging, no podcasts. I want to go one step further. Mm -hmm. This movie to me seems like something I would show my children when they're a little bit older mm -hmm. of what life was like before these things. Because I tell my kids about pausing live television, <laughs> the internet, YouTube, and that they, they don't exist in a world li like I mean, yeah. I, you know, I grew up, I had black and white TVs in my house, but I was at the fringe of it and the end of it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I showed my kids a black and white TV what they would think. So... Think about this movie. Before you get past that, okay. just, as well as we're talking about black and white TVs, that just reminded me of being a kid. And the only TV that I either was allowed to have in my bedroom or could afford to have in my bedroom when I was a teenager or whatever was a black and white TV that the Atari was hooked up okay. to. So the first time I played video games in color, it was like a mind scrambler. Man. It was like Dorothy walking out of the house in The Wizard of Oz. Absolutely. So, so what you go back to what thank you're saying. You. So sorry. No, no, it's all right. This is look, we're talking, we're communicating. Yes, absolutely. So what I like about this movie, it really, I, I talk a lot on the podcast with you about timestamps. Mm -hmm. So this movie is the anti-Facebook, mm -hmm. the anti-social media. Think about this. There was, even going back to, let's go to the, the lowest common denominator, in the scenes where he's playing sound effects, real or real tapes. Mm -hmm. They once said that the reason that Radio Shack started having trouble is because everything on the cover of like their 1988 catalog, mm -hmm. and as I hold up my iPhone to you right now, mm -hmm. is on here. So this is the polar opposite. I mean, imagine if you needed to do sound effects right now, how easy that would be done right now. Oh, absolutely. Go online, real to real tapes. The other thing I, I wanted to say about this also was I hear stories about Metallica. Mm -hmm. Now, I got Metallica's first album, Killed All, on a cassette tape. Okay. That's, think about this. This is a band from the San Francisco area mm -hmm. that recorded an album that got put on cassette tape that probably was copied 10,000 times by the time I got, at time I got this. Right. This is a kid living in Arizona right. from New York who brought music that these guys were not aware of. So think about this. So him sitting there playing the Beastie Boys and playing all some of these other bands that right. have no idea who they are. Think about what that takes. There's no YouTube. There's no opportunity. And to me, it seemed like, think about this. He went to a post office box. Mm -hmm. I mean, pe people were calling people on their phones, uh, having to get a list to look up the teacher's phone numbers on this. I mean, if you're talking about, show, you know, if you said... Um, Magic Genie, show me the 1990s. Show me the world pre-social media. This movie was it. Yeah. Kids hanging out outside with their radios on, nobody looking down at the phone, nobody doing anything. This was kids being kids. And I have to imagine in 1990 Phoenix, Arizona, or wherever they were in Arizona, this was probably an isolated group of people. They didn't have computers. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have all these things. And I think this movie screams of being able to say, look at this. Look how far we've come. And I have to say, I was a little sentimental for it. And it, yeah. made, it made me want a little bit simpler times. Yeah, absolutely. Having said all that, this movie is still completely relevant. Absolutely. In fact, it really struck a chord. Watching the movie, I'm going, wow. 
this is what's going on today. Kids thinking about killing themselves. Oh, my and God. Being careful what you say, bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, Cyberbullying and all that. Right. And you think about the bullying here. We didn't see so much. Um, I guess we always did. We had the one kid talk about the homosexual experience he mm-hmm. had when he went with thought the guys liked him. You I know, thought it was cool that when he was talking to that guy. Right. He didn't judge him in any way. No, not at all. And that... And, you know, the thing is, you know, we live in 2016 in a world where people are are tolerant and appreciative and respectful of differences. But 1990 teenagers probably wouldn't have been that accepting. No, exactly. And just hearing him say that, and even when he was speaking to um, Malcolm Kaiser Mm -hmm. on the phone, it seemed to me he was really just kind of playing his role and didn't realize the seriousness of what was going on in there. I mean... The first thing is, you know, with my legal mind, I'm thinking he's going to get charged with pushing this kid to kill himself. And I think they said they... I don't think he was egging him on or encouraging him. I don't think he realized what he had in the palm of his hand, how powerful everything he was doing, that he had the moment right there. Mm -hmm. Because his speech afterwards, which was probably a little bit too late, really was what I took away from it. Not not all these things, but just the frustration, the things that he was saying. I mean... I can't imagine that what he's saying then isn't affecting teenagers today. Their outlets are a little bit easier. You know, you have Facebook, Twitter. Blogging and all that kind of stuff. But really what got me was the whole world's looking for him, but he puts a pair of sunglasses on and goes to the packing store to check the, uh, (laughs) and then to check the mail, and then stops and goes through the mail and looks at it and Mm -hmm. reads it in front of it. I mean, hello, what? At that point, nobody really knew who he was. So, and I like how he's registered at the post office box as uh, Chuck U. Farley instead of fuck you, Charlie. Uh, Which is cool. But yeah, the thing with Malcolm Kaiser is that the speech that he gives afterward and he says, I'm sorry, Malcolm, I didn't tell you not to do it. Right. And then he realizes, boy, I I really could have done something. And think about that, too. When he's walking around the school, I mean, it's almost like he unleashed something, you know, Mm -hmm. it's uh, evil, I don't know, knowledge, unleashed something that was a virus. What did he say? And what was a virus? He said- uh, The truth. The truth is a virus on here and it was spreading like a virus. Yeah. These kids hearing that other people had problems, I mean, you know, when Paige- decided she was going to just blow up all of her stuff in the microwave yeah i don't mean to say that it's funny but just watching the different levels of people going crazy those two young girls that were just dancing you know yeah and uh but yeah i mean listen speech is powerful it's so powerful and that's why it's protected also what's more powerful than speech these were kids and obviously he tapped into something that they needed absolutely desperately needed and i like how he says that whole bit about how a dirty thought can kind of just go out there to the world and it can enter somebody's mind without them knowing it. And all of a sudden, all of their thoughts are dirty and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, no, it was... It was Again, very well written. Like you um, said, Sorkin-esque. Yeah, the dialogue was outstanding in oh, this. Yeah. Um, and again, we said it before, but man, is he a good actor. Yeah. And one of the other things I read, too, I found an interview with Alan Moyle. He talked about a couple of things. First off, originally he wanted John Cusack for the role. I can which, see it. Which, which would have probably been just as good because he's very, very good, too, at, at these kind of roles. John Cusack actually liked the script, but he told Moyle that he had just played his last teenage role. He didn't want to do teenagers anymore. When they asked Moyle what it was like working with Christian Slater, he said that he was a, a charming young man. He was 20 when they were filming. And again, like I said before, it was released a few days after his 21st birthday. Moyle was asked if Christian recommended any music or shared any opinions. Which, you know, would make sense because he's of that age and, you know, oh, I know what teenagers think, blah, blah, blah. But uh, Moyle said, no, he was remarkable that way. He really didn't care. He also didn't care to improvise. There isn't one improvised syllable in the movie. That's not his style. He can say the same line over and over again and make it real, which is gold. 
That's a testament to how good Christian Slater is. It really is good. And also, by the way, that's also very Sorkin-esque because I just heard that in the West Wing scripts, there was no improvising. You yeah. you do it as it's done. But you're right. We talk how great people are improvising. When you're improvising, you're using your own thoughts. Well, if you're amazing in the way you're acting, it really maybe goes to show the way you're doing it. Because again, mm-hmm. I can have my own thoughts and throw everything in. But if I'm reading right on the page and coming across as if this is the real deal. But that's what acting is. It's taking... Words written on a page by somebody else usually and making them come to life and becoming that person. It shouldn't feel like you're acting. It should feel like you're inhabiting the skin of another person. And he inhabits the skin of two people essentially in this movie. Can we talk about how big was their house? Because it's it's, it's almost <laughs> like, well, I mean, listen, I understand, you know, when I played guitar. I said that too. I said when, that when too. When I was a kid, I played guitar. I'd, I'd crank it as loud as could be. My right. parents weren't wouldn't be bothered by that. Um, I'm sure they'd hear it, but... I mean, they don't know. They hear music playing. It's that's what a teenage kid was doing. They looked like they did. They had a little bit of a hands-off approach to him, getting him comfortable to be in Arizona when they moved. And I thought the parents were cool. I thought they were good natured, and I thought they meant well. And I think at the end, we really saw the father stepped up to the plate. Oh, absolutely. Um, they they definitely seemed like they were a little clueless throughout the movie. I have to admit, I said the same thing when we were watching. Like, wow, like you know, he's down in the basement. They don't hear him carrying on like that, smoking cigarettes, and yeah, all, that. all that kind of stuff. There's actually a funny scene in the movie where the parents come home from the PTA meeting and they're banging on the door. Come on, Mark, open up. We want to yep. talk to you. And he's always trying to hide everything really fast. It's kind of cool the way he had it, like the poster board yeah, going in. and everything, yeah. Right. And then he finally lets him in and they're like, what's going on here? And, and then Nora jumps up. He was talking to me. They were and, like, hot dog, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were just psyched that he was interacting with another human being, especially a girl. Yeah. The, the father was saying, how hard it is to talk to girls? Yeah, Why yeah. is it so hard? But no, I agree. And that was a great scene between the two of them. She was a good partner in crime to him. Mm-hmm. It's really, uh, she looked like she was just dying for something more. If the chemistry between the two of them felt very real, it's probably because they had dated. Okay. I don't know if they were dating while they were filming this or if they ended up dating afterwards, but they did date. I wanted to talk about, was it the principal? Was that Loretta Cresswood? Mm-hmm. You know, she reminded me of the principal from Greece. That's not the same person, is it? No. I thought that she was a kind of a good evil dictator in, yeah. the, in it. I mean, I love to hate her in it. The thought of a, a principal weeding out the so-called troubled kids so that she can get her SAT scores up in the school and get money from the government. And right. then she was like keeping the money from the government and keeping the kids that she's expelling on the roll right. and everything. It's crazy. And it's, it's a great a, story. It's, it's again, great writing. I'm sure things like that have probably happened. You never know. The writer reads a story about that. Here's something about it. You know, we talk about judges that were getting paid to send kids to these child facilities. They were getting paid under the table to sentence them. So we don't know what people are capable of. Well, according to an article published in the Toronto Star in August 1990 called Movie View's Cruel World of Today's Teenage Angst, the school in the film, Hubert Humphrey High, was based on a real Montreal high school. A. There you go. Right. <laughs> Director Sorry. Alan Moyle's sister taught at the school. And according to Moyle, the school had a principal who had a pact with the staff to enhance the credibility of the school scholastically at the expense of the students who were immigrants or culturally disabled in some way or another. So, yeah. This really did happen. I mean, there's nothing in this movie that says based on a true story, but obviously the director yeah, took some, from, from the experience, much like Aaron Sorkin took from his sister's experience in A Few Good Men. 
I really am Sorkin obsessed. I'm sorry. Listen, I dig him too. He's, yeah. he's phenomenal. Everything he touches is great. But um, a couple other things I liked about the movie. One of my favorite parts is when he takes it to go, when he sets up the Jeep. It was interesting. He had the knowledge to do it. He's sitting there with the soldering iron. Yeah, and the... I, I think you got to suspend disbelief a little bit with a no, lot I, of that I, stuff. You but... know, I, always, I always say, if you don't believe a man can fly, don't watch Superman. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, no, exactly. but he uh, there was something very cool about it and how low-tech the FCC was. Let me ask you this. What government entity... Other than the president of the United States shows up in a limousine. Yeah, that was far-fetched. That, a helicopter chase, those vans tracking them and all that. It's, you know, the FCC obviously would not be happy with what this guy's doing. But they're not going to send a task force out like they're like the the FBI with like a SWAT team or whatever. Well, you had a kid kill himself. I mean, I'm, I'm saying they, the stakes were definitely raised, but I agree on that. Yeah, it. I mean, uh, there's no helicopters involved, and there, there's definitely not the guy uh, in a limo. Right, doing that, that. that weirded me out. We're, we're under attack here. Right, we're under siege here. I want to talk about the teacher. What was her name? In uh, the, real life? The, no, the good teacher. What was the Ellen, character? Ellen Green, uh, Jan Emerson is her name in the So movie. I liked watching how she, it sounds weird, but that she cared. Yeah. She cared about the students. She was really like the ray of light and darkness in the movie. Mm-hmm. Did she know that Mark was Hard Harry? What do you think? I don't think so. I think she recognized him as being a good writer. And it's funny because when she was listening to the show, right. she clearly was enjoying it. Oh, yeah. So maybe she uh, connected him somehow because because he, he's obviously very articulate. He gave a lot of clues away too. Like I got these from when I was back east. Okay, well, yeah. it's a who's student the new kid? here. Who's the new kid? Although that's a good question because he's the new kid who's under the radar. You know, yeah. nobody paid attention to him. He was really invisible. So maybe nobody would have known if he didn't open up. Who yeah, would know? I mean, again, you know, we can sit here and and dissect and point out all the things that are sort of plot holes, but at the same time. Uh, I'm not one for doing that most of the time. And you probably could come up with a logical explanation for almost anything in this movie. Well, you know, this was a really interesting movie. It was interesting to revisit, interesting to think about. And Christian Slater really was outstanding. I don't want to say he's the biggest star in the world, but he's had a long, consistent career. Yeah. Doesn't seem and to he's be kind stopping. of, his career is kind of on the upswing again. He was in that Mr. Robot show that was pretty successful. Yeah, I didn't see that, but I heard he was on it also. He reminds me of a little bit of a Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Um, He's done some stuff with Kevin Bacon, too. Yeah. What, what were they in together? He's Murder in the First, Okay, right, right. right which yeah. was very good. They Excellent were both very movie. good in that. Yeah, there's something very cool about Christian Slater, which hasn't gone away with age. Yeah. It would be interesting to see where they are now and what happened in this movie. This would be a cool thing to be able to poke 20 years forward and see what became of their characters. In recent years, when he's talked about the movie, somebody said to him, you know, you could come back and play that role again. You haven't changed that much, and you could be that guy now and see what would have happened to him. You know, they talked about, and I I want to bring this up also, they said that... um, combination of Lenny Bruce and Holden Caulfield. Mm-hmm. I've read The Catcher in the Rye. He really is very Holden Caulfield in this also. He picked up what was in Lenny Bruce, he said, the book, How to Talk Dirty to Influence People. Mm-hmm. You'd think that Nora, when she was in the library, would have said, look at this guy picking this book up. Oh, I, I think she was guy. onto him like almost immediately. Yeah, it makes sense. She put it together really fast. You know, that's why she followed him to the, the post office box. And that's why probably she didn't enclose the number when she wrote as uh, Eat Me, Beat Me right. Lady. I liked when they went over to, they traced the calls and went over to the neighbor's house and arrested his neighbors and they found yeah. the phone in their shed. Yeah, that was very cool. Because the first time you see the movie, you're going, oh man, he's busted. Yeah, they traced the call. Right. Oh, that's it. Yeah. What I did like is, you know, I can't remember the name, the blonde kid that got thrown out of school. I don't, he, I don't um, remember either. He's sitting there going, come on, Harry, do something. Run, run. run. Right, he's like, worried about him. They were so, they were so intense with it. <laughs> I like that dude. I tried to figure out who he was, but yeah. I don't think I've seen him in anything else, actually. One other casting note I wanted to mention, Seth Green has a very small role in this movie. He's got long red hair. He's one of the kids that jury rigs the boombox into the the PA system. Okay. 
and then he's high fiving. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he has a speaking part. I wanted to see if I can get a list of all you know, check out the soundtrack and everything like that. Some pretty good music on it, though. Other than the yeah. Beastie Boys, I couldn't tell you one other person on it. But, well, that uh, was the thing. When the movie came out, it introduced a lot of people to a lot of new music, too. The theme song that he uses when he signs on is Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows. Each time he plays a song, he uses a different format. He uses reel-to-reel, he uses vinyl, and he uses cassette tapes, which I think is kind of cool. And just talking about the existence of vinyl, yeah. what would your thoughts be on a remake of this movie? No, thank you. No, thank you. Couldn't, no, thank you. Couldn't be done. No. I mean, first of all, a remake would be a different writer, probably. Okay. And one of the best things about this movie is how well it's written. And you run the risk of it getting diluted or something. And the other thing, too, nowadays when they try to remake something like this, they're going to maybe try to make it raunchier or something. And that would just cheapen it, I think. You're right. You know, it's funny. The reason I brought that up is because I started watching a little bit of Point Break, the remake, uh, over the weekend. Yeah, I didn't bother. Uh, it was not terrible. It, mm-hmm. was, it wasn't great. I completely forgot about it until this very second, which, which says a lot for it. But <laughs> it, it, had, it had an interesting angle to it. Okay. I, can't, I can't say I wasn't intrigued. If I okay. caught it on cable, I wouldn't watch the rest of it. But, but, they, but we were watching going, why? Why did they remake it? That's the point. Because somebody sat back and did the math and said, you know, we could probably do it. Or somebody came up with a good script. Maybe. You know, like anything else, you know, somebody presents an amazing script. Money talks, bullshit walks on this. So, uh... Somebody comes up with a good script. Who knows what a studio will do? It's funny because when Sue and I did the podcast a couple of weeks ago for 21 Jump Street, I said, this is one of the few times that a reboot is actually a good thing. Yeah. Because the difference is that when they made 21 Jump Street into a movie, they made it a comedy. They didn't try to make it like the TV show, which was more of a cop drama, right? I feel like better leave certain things alone. I agree. One other thing I wanted to say about this movie, the film takes place in Phoenix, Arizona, but was actually filmed in California. And so. it's funny, I've been to Phoenix several times. I wouldn't have known that unless you said it. It seemed like it was in Phoenix. Yeah, well, that's, I'm sure that's by design. So this was a great movie. I like that you brought it in for Back to School Month. I'm going to give you full credit. You suggested Pump Up the Volume for this month when I said, hey, Blazer, I want to do a podcast with you for September, but I'm kind of doing a school theme for the month. What do you got? And you came up with this. I have to say two things before you say that. I'm not 100% sure that my wife didn't come up with it. She came up with something, and it may be this, and I don't want to get in trouble. So there's a strong chance, Nikki, if you came up with this, here's your credit right now. (laughs) Okay, very good. And I promised my good friend Adam Bronner and loyal Screen Facts listener a shout out. So, what's up? Great movie and great theme, by the way. I'm, you know, my wife's a teacher. I have three kids in school right now, so I am immersed in back to school. Yeah. The best thing about doing this podcast with you, other than spending some time with my good friend and getting called Blazer every five minutes, which I like, <laughs> watching these movies and revisiting them and also, you know, kind of looking at them with my, you know, 40 plus year old mind. Yeah. And that's the thing. Movies that we grew up with don't always hold up. You know, there's a lot of movies that I remember watching as a teenager or in my 20s that I thought were really, really great. And then when I've watched them recently, not so much. Some of the biggest heartbreaks in my life have been <laughs> 1970s TV shows. Oh, man. Dukes of Hazard, unwatchable. <laughs> oh, my God. I can imagine. You know, I'd, I'd like to sit through the $6 million man and the bionic woman. I'm mm-hmm. hoping those could stand the test of time. But this was watchable. I, I, it was as good today as the first time TV's, I saw it. TV is definitely probably tougher than the movies. And Because the TV shows back then were super innocent. And they couldn't get away with a lot of stuff. Movies, they could do a lot more. And I want to ask this question because I've been mm-hmm. hearing a lot of the podcasts. Mm-hmm. Did you see it in the movies? I know that I definitely saw this movie around the time that it came out. Like, in other words, it came out in 1990. It wasn't like I saw it 10 years later for the first time. Well, let's put it this way. I remember liking this movie so much when I originally saw it that when I got a DVD player, 
I bought it on DVD. Okay. So there you go. So I really like this movie. I enjoyed talking about it. And once again, thank you for having me on Screen Facts with Jason Davis. <laughs> Blazer, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. Remember the Facebook page, facebook.com slash screenfacts, Twitter at Jason Davis Voice, email screenfacts at yahoo.com. Join in the conversation if you want. Please rate and comment on iTunes. Please show your support for the show by ordering Screen Facts merchandise. You can find all that stuff on the podcast page of jasondavisvoice.com. If you'd like to get information about Brian's law office, you can look him up online at berklaw.com. It's B-E-R-K law.com. Thanks to audionautics.com for the theme music. And thanks to our announcer, Kim McKay from kimsvoice.com. Screen Facts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Visit Jason Davis voice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program, and more. Click on the podcast page to get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis.